And it's funny because we we do live in a world where there is this the word bipolar is coming to mind. It's not the right word, but it's um binary decision, which is, you know, somehow natural is good and synthetic is bad you know, for a subset of the population. And it's just like it it's not true. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is one of the leading attorneys in the psychedelic space who helped champion the effort for approval of the Colorado Natural Medicines Act, or Prop 122, a law that was recently passed in Colorado decriminalizing psychedelics and creating a framework for legal regulated access to psychedelics. His name is Joshua Kappel. In 2022, Josh was recognized by his peers in the best lawyers list for his work in the cannabis industry. Josh, thank you for joining us today. Are you ready to go field tripping? I am. I am. And, and, and thanks, <laughs> thanks, Ronan. Thanks so much for, for having me. And yeah, and for the kind words as well. It's been a, it's been a very fascinating last couple of years here in Colorado. Congratulations on the passing of Prop 122. Uh, I'm sure it was a massive feeling of achievement and relief to see it succeed. It's a huge win for Colorado and frankly, for people all over the world. One stop, one small step for Coloradans, one giant leap for mankind, so to speak. So first question is, how does it feel um, to get it over the line? Uh, does it feel like you finished something or does it really feel like you may have just actually started something? You know, Ron, it feels a little bit more like like we're just getting started. I think the um, yeah. you know, when, a, when a lot of congratulations came in, you know, on election night or, you know, a few days after based off of how slow Denver counts the votes, which you, know, you don't get me started on that, but we, but we passed by 200,000 votes. It wasn't that close, but, um, but you yeah. know, it's really, you know, sort of the feeling, you know, it's like in Colorado, tons of mountains and, you know, it's like kind of got to the false summit. Like we thought we got to the top of the mountain. And when we got there, we like, look, we look in front of us we're like, Oh no, actually the mountains, right. You know, right behind. And, um, <clears throat> You know, and that's kind of how it's, it's, it's felt a little bit. It's like really exciting because, you know, there's a lot of good pieces of this that goes into effect right away. But there's also, look, we shot for the mood in, in the policy. And, and now, you know, you know, making it work is going to require a lot of people coming together. So that, that's a great transition, which is, can you tell us about Prop 122, what's included, how it works, how it's going to roll out over the next two years? Um, and and just the process from here. Yeah, so, you, you know, really like the why behind Prop 122 is like, how do we provide access to natural psychedelic assisted therapy to any adult who could need it? And, you know, you know, that's sort of like the why of like what drove us. And, you know, from there, you know, we put together this policy. There really is two different access models. One is a state regulated model. And then the second is this like personal use community healing model. You know, when I look at, you know, you know, psychedelic therapy, you know, I see a you know, number of different path pathways. I support them all. You know, on one hand, you have, you know, you know, a federally approved pharmaceutical model that, you know, helps people with diagnoses. Then you have this like state, the state based model that we put together that is sort of like, you know, it's, it doesn't require diagnosis. It's a therapeutic based model. It's still regulated. Um, you know, there's, you know, this is more of like a public facing model. And then also in Prop 122, you have this personal use community healing model. So really Prop 122 has these two main pieces. And the, you know, how it goes into effect is, is sort of like this. Is on the regulated 
side, it's going to be a two-year implementation process. It's similar to Oregon, but you know, based you know, learning from Oregon's experiences, you know, there's a lot of differences. Um, and on the regulated side, you know, the the natural psychedelics in question are psilocybin and psilocybin. And then, you know, to, you know, on that piece, you know, we'll see an advisory board be created. We'll see rules. There'll be public comment. It'll unfold over the next couple of years and there'll be, you know, it creates licensed healing centers. There'll be a new, you know, profession created in Colorado, this like psychedelic facilitator. There's a lot to unpack. You know, and then in, a, in addition to that, there's this personal use section that allows any adult over the age of 21 to cultivate, possess, process, store, purchase and share you know, natural psychedelic medicines. And that goes into effect, you know, pretty much any time now, you know, once, you know, once the vote's certified, you know, it should be in effect. The measure's retroactive. So there's already been cases dismissed under this. And we just talk about those, but on the personal use side, you know, the natural psychedelics in question are psilocybin, psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, but not from peyote. Cool. Thank you for that. With respect to the personal kind of community-based healing, in other words, you're treating people with dignity and respect to make their own decisions, which is kind of nice to hear, right? I mean, it's so innovative and it's like actually so friggin' elementary. It's almost infuriating, Um, (laughs) but that's, that's a really cool, you know, it, it is an innovation. I mean, if you look at Oregon as, as a framework, you know, this is, I think a really essential piece to, to, normalizing in, an, in a very constructive way. So let, let's just kind of unpack them a little bit. So in the state regulated model, sorry, remind me which which uh, compounds are going to be covered or which plants are going to be covered by? Yeah. So on the state regulated side, it's psilocybin and psilocybin to start with. And then, you know, the, you know, it, like maybe, you know, and we'll see, like, you know, the advisory board can make recommendations of adding ibogaine, DMT, or mescaline, but not from peyote to it after 2026. And it's interesting because it's like some of these substances are more suited for regulation than others, you know, but there's a lot of cultural considerations to like unpack and regulating any of them. But, you know, it's a lot of folks would say like, hey, ayahuasca circles shouldn't be regulated. Like we we shouldn't put the government in between these like intergenerational wisdom traditions. But it's like, but Mm -hmm. ibogaine, which is like very, very effective for, you're kicking heroin addictions, that should be regulated. There's like actually like a safety profile and safety screen that needs to happen. But either way, we just have to figure out like the sustainability issue. So to your question though, you know, it's like we start on the regular side of psilocybin, psilocybin. Maybe we add in these other substances. Maybe we don't. We, we'll sort of see that, you know, how this unfolds. Okay. And, and in that context, um, there'll be licensed locations um, for it kind of similar to the Oregon model as part of it. And then you're creating a new profession of, of psychedelic facilitation or facilitators. Are those the sort of two key components of what the program will will look like? And I guess there's going to be a manufacturing consider. Yeah. So on the regulated model, you know, the business, the businesses that will be licensed will be these healing centers and they're um, unlike cannabis, you, you from our prior years, the uh, unlike cannabis, the you know, it's a one size fits all license right now. So the healing center will be able to manufacture, produce, process, sell the other healing centers, and be a place for natural medicine services for the psychedelic experiences to take place. 
And, you know, and so that's, you know, one license, or they'll be licensed by the state, you know, right now, you know, we, you know, the Department of Regulatory Affairs is in charge, and they'll be licensing them. There will be sort of like over like zoning regulations by local governments. It's not like Oregon, local governments cannot opt out. You know, our thought is, you know, our thought in that is that actually, you know, if we, if you have an opt out provision, it's, you know, it'll just be the progressive parts of the state that have, have natural psychedelic assisted therapy. And, Obviously, the entire state needs it. And um, yeah. on that piece, and then the licensed facilitators will also be licensed by DORA. The idea is to have like a tiered facilitator training or a facilitator license where, you know, maybe there's a facilitator one license that's just like the trip sitter, you know, that does non-directive, you know, non-directive supervision. Whereas maybe a higher tiered license is someone who's actually providing psychedelic assisted therapy in one of these experiences. And, um, you know, so that's the thought on the facilitator side. Another key piece, though, is there is a mandate that there's regulations around facilitators coming to private residences and also to other healthcare facilities. And, so, you know, sort of like the okay. reason there is like, you know, around like end of life care. And, you know, and some people don't want to go to a, you know, a state regulated facility. They'd rather be in their own home. So we have to figure those pieces out and, you know, and, and to figure out, you know, how to, creates you know psilocybin services at nursing homes is gonna it's gonna be quite a tricky feat um yeah it, it is and and just a couple of things that like i would like to i think i appreciate because one of the big challenges i've noticed um or thought about and i haven't been following it too actively but one of the challenges with this whole model is <laughs> if you're creating a new profession of licensed facilitators it's hard, right? It's it's like just because you have a master's degree in social work does not mean you're a qualified psychedelic sitter. And also truthfully, like sitting in didactic learning environments to learn about psilocybin and how to do this also doesn't make you a competent psychedelic assisted therapist by any stretch of the imagination. So there's this real challenge, uh, I think, about how do you reconcile the need, especially in a regulated model, to have competence even though most academic measures that we use to measure competence have no bearing on actual competence, you and I are, are both lawyers and, and we know law school had no bearing on our capacity to actually practice law effectively. And, and so that's one of the things that's always kind of top of mind for me, but I really appreciate the idea of tiered facilitation licenses, which is okay. Like we, we want to mandate a certain basic level of understanding. If, if it's only a base level based on what I'm hearing from you, it's kind of like you can't hold yourself out as a person who's doing psychedelic assisted therapy because you're not actually qualified for it, but doesn't stop you from being a licensed provider in some capacity. So it gives at least more flexibility and, and self-selection without you know, alienating people because I think one of the challenges with Oregon is like, how do you get enough people to go through the licensing system of a, of a certain tier and, and make sure that they can actually functionally do that? So I, I think that's, that's really. Yeah. And, and we'll see. I'm, I mean, my guess is that there'll be, you know, additional, you know, it's like trying to fix one problem and it's like probably open a whole basket of other problems, you know, cause it's like, how do you actually know if someone's coming in for, a spiritual experience or for trauma it's like sometimes the medicines have their own way of dictating what they want to work on um you know and so we'll see we'll see and, and another thing that's interesting i love your thoughts on it, is like what sort of like training requirements should be required like is this like is this like oh 
200 hours like a yoga teacher training or is this 10 years or 15 years like a psychiatrist or somewhere in between like 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 what does make sense you know in terms of like hours and then and I think you hit on something very key too which is like the the practicum experience like how do we actually provide people with practical experience here too and and with that then like learn from other you know other like intergenerational traditions i don't have great ideas right i mean as we know regular regulation is a blunt instrument and whatever we do it creates as many problems as it solves and that's why i've become fairly libertarian in my old age which is like for every good regulation you're creating an unintended consequence which is going to require its own regulation and it's just an never-ending cycle and that's why we get tax acts that look this big and securities acts that look this big and and they just become ridiculous and, and and useless to be quite honest and they have so lost connection with the original purpose to what they set out to do that it and it, it built its own infrastructure and there's lawyers and entrenched interests and it just becomes a mess and so i know people don't like hearing this but i, I i'm a believer that it's like we need to trust people to make their own decisions right now everybody who's dealing with psychedelics or having psychedelic experiences on an underground level is taking that risk on by themselves in the first place right they just kind of have to trust their network their friends their intuition to decide if someone is an appropriate facilitator or not and truth is by and large it's working and at the same time some people have traumatic experiences and negative experiences and 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 that's terrible to me though it still feels like that's the right approach it is by and large working it's it's happening globally but it it just kind of like it, it, you know it's people don't like talking about the market in the psychedelic conversation but the market is working i think pretty well right now so how do how do we do it i don't know you know one idea as we were talking was maybe the idea of just people you know have to self identify how many hours of facilitation they've done right mm -hmm. not necessarily with a supervising but I, I i could know that josh Kappel has now sat for 300 hours of ayahuasca ceremonies and it's like okay that gives me comfort but uh, there's no perfect answer to be quite honest um but i lean to trying to not over engineer it or let it work itself out learn see what we can do not be reactionary like most policy is drafted and just kind of adapt and evolve is, is kind of where i lean on it's super interesting, especially like seeing it, you know, from the cannabis space where it's like people made regulations based off of fear that really made no sense. Almost all regulation is based that way. Yeah. And it's again, I hope here it's like through the process, like we're already seeing it. We're seeing, you know, state legislatures, be like, what do you mean? Like people can just grow their own and they can grow as, as much as they need for themselves and to give out for free to their community. Like, what like just minds exploding you know and it's like yeah like that was intentional like it's not a big deal it's like psilocybin use isn't associated with increased crime it's not associated with addiction it's like it's it's associated with healing you know and you know and so it's you know it's trying to like push back you know and like hey what is what is the reasonable voice here and i think it's hard too because it'd be like really nice to you know, try and figure out how do we center some of you know, the regulations, if any that, you know, they're coming like around sort of like traditional healers and people have been doing this for generations and generations. And how do we, how do we learn, you know, it's like, how do we all collectively like build this together in a manner that that's, that's honoring these like, you know, prior traditions and current traditions while also, and, and not appropriating from them, you know, and that, like, what, like, what does that look like? And, 
you because you know i think it's and then how does that cl- clash with like our you know western society that has its own you know <laughs> its own um speed and its own um and it's yeah its own habits you know to to, to say things nicely <laughs> These are all fair questions. And again, I come back to the kind of place of like, let's, let's experience and learn and evolve and adapt. That, that yeah. That's really it. Cause I, I know we've seen from the cannabis industry, having both lived through it, you know, I watch it in Canada right now, which is all the dispensaries, you know, not all, a lot of dispensaries are going out of business because one is the licensing regime was idiotic uh, to start with. And, and so there's so few, and then there's so many and they're so restricted on how they can operate and they're all selling the same product and and they can't market and they can't communicate and you have to block the windows and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, you, you successfully pushed most people back into the underground by over-engineering the legal market to make sure it doesn't. All well-intentioned, um, but it was too much, right? Um, and then you walk out and there's a, an, an LCBO in, in Ontario, all liquors sold through the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. They're turned into beautiful stores but it's interesting because if you go back 30 years to buy booze in ontario it was i don't think you had this in the u.s maybe you did is there's a store called consumers distributing where you'd walk in fill out a little piece of paper you'd hand it to the the person at the desk who would go into the back and come out and bring you the package and that's how the actually the lcbo in ontario worked for a long time you'd go in write a piece of paper this is before my time uh, or i was too young for it and you can they'd give you something in a in a paper bag like it was shameful to walk out with like booze and now you walk into an lcbo and there are some of the most luxurious stores in ontario you know and, and it's it's expensive um but it is a very pleasant shopping commercial experience even government-run stores can evolve <laughs> totally especially when there's money to be made in it right um uh, so one thing I think that's like I'm really proud of in Prop 122, and we mentioned earlier, is this like dual approach model. Because literally, if they overregulate the regulated side, everyone's going to stay in the personal use community, community healing side. And if the personal use community healing side doesn't self-regulate and it becomes dangerous, everyone's going to go to the regulated side. So we actually have like a counterbalance. There'll be an interesting, yeah, like an interesting study of like regulation versus unregulated unregulated markets now there's differences between the two you know on the personal use side you can't like commercialize it there's some exceptions you can't advertise you know it's meant to sort of like protect the existing community you know and and the regulated side will be this like public facing regulated model but they'll still be both models and, and, and we'll see how they you know play off of each other I truly think is is a is a beautiful approach, right? It gives people the opportunity to figure out what works for them, and and I think where it lands is probably some people are like, you know what, I don't, I don't feel comfortable going to Josh, the you know community ayahuasca healer. Um, I really would like someone who's got a psychotherapy degree, and that's what I want to do. And now there's that program for it, and and I can do that, or I can also just like go to Josh and and have my experience because I, I deeply trust him and I've known him for 20 years, and and I've seen the work he does, and I have respect for him. It's like cool that that works beautifully. It's interesting because it's like something we've been kicking around is like is you know it's like I kind of want to go to a guide or a healer, you, you know, or a a shaman, even though I hate that word, but, you know, at least used outside of like a very traditional context, you know, but the, yeah. but it's like, I don't know, I'm like, Hey, what is your experience with the medicine? It's like, how many bad trips have you had? 
You know, like how many people have you dealt with that have been like completely destabilized and you've helped them integrate? You know, it's like like that, like that sort of like to me is like so much more practical and real than like, oh, you've completed, you know, 500 hours, you know, and, you know, and, and, and passed the test. You aced the test, you know, on your laptop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One question I have is this is called the Natural Medicines Health Act. And we know that there's a number of. Uh, psychedelics that are not naturally occurring, MDMA, LSD, you know, um, MMC. Why, why only natural products? And I guess a related question is just in terms of the um, healing centers, what is the regulation around cultivation going to look like? Is it going to be severe like we see with the cannabis in this industry or is it intended to be a little bit more flexible? I'll take the cultivation one first. The it's a little to be determined, you know, it's like, like there's a mandate of like creating like safety requirements. There's, you know, there's, you know, packaging and labeling and testing, but it's, you know, this isn't like how Prop 122 is without it being, without there being sales, like the supply side of this market's going to be pretty small, you know, and you could probably, you know, one company could, you know, probably grow enough mushrooms for like, you know, not that much space for you know the whole state of Colorado. And as someone explained it to me the other day, they're like, yeah, it's like if you're making microdosing products, the you know the cost of the capsule is more expensive than the cost of the mushroom. You know, and so you know, so it'll be interesting of like what did that supply side looks like. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the same agency that regulates cannabis try and make a push to regulate, um, you know, to regulate production here, and then hopefully. If they do that, they don't add the same onerous sort of restrictions. Um, but we'll see. So the, what the actual regulation of cultivation or processing looks like will be at the end of the day um, decided through this, this you, know, you know, through this like public rulemaking process. Does that give you any heartburn? Um, you know, one of the experiences I've had throughout my career is that regulators like to regulate um, and and know entrench their role and then keep themselves in business um again it's like I, I it sounds like i'm being somewhat conspiratorial i'm not you know it's not that i think that people who are doing this work are ill-intentioned i think they're very well-intentioned and seek to do the right thing it just doesn't always get played out and and so what ends up happening is is the byproduct of this is that regulators feel the need to regulate um because that's their role um and, and that often leads to overregulation in some instances. In mind. So does, does that worry you at all in this, in this case? Oh, 100%. <laughs> no doubt about it. The, um, you know, I think, you know, it's like, that's why I think it's like we have such a, a large mountain to climb now because so much of this bill is kicked to the regulatory process and things, you know, can go many, many different directions. You know, you can see zero regulations to over regulations to regulations that make sense to regulations that don't make sense so you know my rule of thumb with regulators they generally pass regulations that make their life easier you know and provide political cover if something happens you know and so it's right. you know how does that you know play into regulating a, a an industry like this you know and, and many people you know especially folks who we've heard there you know throughout the campaign it was like they don't want the government touching this at all. And that's also a fair, that's also a fair position. You know, it's, you know, there are, you know, there's also, you know, many cases of people being destabilized, you know, based off of eating the wrong things or, you know, or it's even like, you know, it's like mixing like Syrian rue with psilocybin. Like what, you know, it's like, 
that can extend the trip. It can make it more intense. You know, it's like it can, you know, lead, you know, it can really throw people off their game when you mix different products with psilocybin. And so there, so we'll see how the regulations come out there. But at the same time, it's like you, you know, you have this stamina stack where it's, you know, niacin and lion's mane and, and psilocybin. If you make regulations that ban adding any products, you actually ban like what's proven to be more effective than just psilocybin itself. And so I'm with you. I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of fear, not fears, trepidation maybe about like how this regulatory process will. I do really, you know, I do really trust our governor's office and our governor, you know, he was supportive on, I don't know, he was very supportive on Bill Maher. I recommend that you, you know, watch his little clip there. But, you know, I think, I think there, there'll be a desire to get it right. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. that the people who make these decisions at the end of the day actually know what right is. Yeah, no, that, that that's entirely true. And, and that's one of the, I think, big awakenings I've had over the last couple of years, which was in Canada, our prime minister is Justin Trudeau, who I actually like and have a lot of respect for. I think he's well-intentioned. You know, Has he been perfect? Absolutely not. But has he been better than worse? I, I think so. Uh, and then I had this stunning realization. He's, I think, three or four years, maybe five years older than I am. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing most of the time. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure he has no idea what he's doing 99% of the time. And that's just the nature of life. And so why is it that anyone expects Justin Trudeau or any regulator to have any insight in what is right for me or for you better than you do or I do, right? We're all just figuring it out on the fly. And, and so it really kind of opened me up to saying like, yeah, regulators are going to get it wrong a lot of the time. And I know that because I get it wrong a lot of the time. And, and so we need to find that appropriate balance between guidance, information, education, understanding, and respect for individuals to make an, you know, thoughtful decisions for themselves. I completely agree. And I think it's like, like there's, and I appreciate that like sense of like humility there where it's like, Hey, even with, you know, it's like I'm very biased. I think there's like the, one of the best pieces of drug policy legislation ever written. But the, um, yeah. the, the you know, with that, they're like, we got things wrong. I don't know what those things are yet, but there's going to be things we got wrong. You know, and there's, you know, it's like through this process, like to really get to right, there has to be a level of humility. And the only way you can be right about something is if you admit when you're wrong. Or also acknowledge that there can be many different ways in which you can be right, and and those differ for different people. Uh, but I do agree. I, I I think, you know, through the lens of a framework, I think you've created an interesting system that has inherent checks and balances, you know, built into it, much like the U.S. Constitution did back in the day. Although, uh, give it to certain political parties to re-engineer that and take away a lot of those checks and balances. But I think that's the way to do it, right? You have an, an inherent mutually assured destruction system in it, which keeps everybody honest. Uh, and, and so that's why I think that's what makes it really smart in my mind. Uh, so, so kudos to you for getting that across the line. Your question on natural medicine though. Um, oh yes. Twofold. You know, one is, you know, it's when we were looking at this, there's a big fentanyl crisis going on, you know, around North America, around, you know, in Colorado. And, you know, the political appetite of bringing synthetic products to the public debate, you know, didn't seem to be there. You know, the, um, right. you know, because everyone's worried about, you know, 
you know, like no one's going to cut LSD with fentanyl. I don't know if like that's like possible, but you know, it's like, but that's like, you have a lot of people that don't know anything about psychedelics and they just like assume the worst. And so part of where we had to draw the line, just make a political calculus was just like natural products. Like everyone's like, everyone's should be okay with nature at the end of the day. You know, and I think just fundamentally when you think about people criminalizing different plants, you know, it's, like the public doesn't really agree to on um, like this this notion of, like oh we should criminalize plants that naturally grow um, we should criminalize fungi that naturally grows like no it makes no sense you know and if, if people are like hey we should criminalize some synthetic substance that gets you really high you're like well yeah maybe you know so it's you know a lot of it was a political calculation also like looking at the fentanyl issue and then another piece too is just like understanding the the state based lane you know where it's you know Look, you have folks who are developing all sorts of pharmaceutical drugs on, you know, on one hand. And, you know, and it's like, and so, you know, we're not looking, you know, back to what I said earlier, like, hey, I appreciate the all path model. It's like, you know, to me, the state based lane is more of a natural products model and it's more of a therapeutic model. It's more of a personal agency model, you know, and so you know, that's just like how I look at that. Look at it. With that said, though, it's like at some point. You know, it's like, do, do people find a lot of benefits from LSD? Do you see studies going on? Do people microdose it? Should LSD be criminalized? Probably not. You know, like, is there a whole different safety profile of LSD versus psilocybin, especially when it comes to overintoxication? Yes. But that's the case of every drug. Like, every drug is different, you know, and they have different effects. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. It is funny, though. I mean, I, I was recently at a training uh, for ketamine, and one of the people there, you know, he's a... Uh, He's a scientist, he's, he's a drug developer, and he was talking about the beauty of ketamine, which is not a natural product, you know, it's a synthetic product, but it can be incredibly healing and super productively used. It has some addictive qualities without doubt, but it, it, you know, with conscious responsible use is not a risk for, for addiction or dependence. And it's funny because we, we do live in a world where there is this the word bipolar is coming to mind. It's not the right word, but it's um binary decision, which is, you know, somehow natural is good and synthetic is bad you know, for a subset of the population. And it's just like, it, it's not true. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer. I remember I was not a huge fan of Shakespeare uh, when I was in high school, um, but uh, I, I was always awed by his awareness of the human psyche. And I remember the line in Hamlet, which is there's nothing good or bad, but it so um and uh, and it's true right there is nothing inherently good or bad everything just exists and we make judgment decisions about what's good or bad and and it feels like it's become somewhat binary again which is natural is good synthetic is bad within a subset and i get it i mean the po political calculus to me makes a whole bunch of sense right it, it's just an easier conversation to have with natural products right now um but it's it's also a little bit unfortunate to see the gamification that has to be played with sensible I think, policy reform. I think you're right there. There's this like binary, like natural is good, synthetic bad. And, and, you know, it's like people with ketamine, like, you know, people, we have clinics all over Colorado and there's, you know, ketamine treatment centers versus ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And, you know, and it varies and people find tons of relief, you know, from ketamine, you know, and, and it's a synthetic substance for sure. It's also ketamine's like, one of the few substances in Colorado that they didn't defalonize personal possession of because they still think it's a date rape, you know, and it's like, so it's right. like, there's weird drug laws that go on. And, um, and I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a, a chemist, but it's like, 
a lot of me, a lot of times I wonder like at what point you know does natural become synthetic? And it's like at what point are you mixing natural ingredients together? You know, for example, with ayahuasca, you're mixing two different plants together in a in a brew. Is that like all of a sudden synthetic? Because you're like you know, there's a human process going into it. No, like no one's saying that. You know, but it's like you know, and that's why we have like a whole set of ultra confusing you know regulations around organic and natural and you know and the like in our you know in our food supply system because it's it's a hard thing to to decipher you know where that line is. And then on top of that too, it's like you also get on the synthetic side a lot more like you have a really strong conservation argument. You know when you know when there's conservation issues with Ibogaine in Africa and you know in, in Gabon and you have you know conservation issues. Even the latest one I heard was around you know like the Peruvian torch cactus and you know different like like San Pedro cactuses. Like you know, there is like a benefit of, on the synthetic side because you don't have that same you know conservation issue. But I do believe there's like ways like actually address like regenerative ag agriculture address that but there is like you know good you know you know environmental argument on the synthetic side as well totally uh, on that note peyote was specifically excluded from uh, the scope of the personal community uh, activities why, why was that you know sort of based off of and i've you know i did not have these conversations with the native american church but the native american church and in the U.S. has like made it known that they don't want peyote to be subject to you know drug reform legislation. I think in part, um, you know, yeah, I don't speak to them, you know, or for them, yeah, by any means. But like, I think it's just like you know, they're the stewards of this tradition and just sort of like honoring their wishes, you know. And you know, I think some of the reasons might be like we don't want to increase demand for it. It's already like a very you know, there's endangerment issues, you know, you know, there's a lot of different issues going on with peyote. And so it's like, hey, let's just take this out. Let's just take this out of you. And there is, it's interesting. There's like with, you know, with mescaline, there is, you know, another hundred cactus that grow it. And most of those you can actually, you know, it's like the San Pedro cactus. You can go, you know, buy your local, you know, hardware store. It's, it's legal to grow these cactuses. Every cactus but peyote is actually legal to grow in the U.S., you know, so anywhere, you know, before our measure passed. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, an interesting layered and nuanced conversation. Totally. And it's going back to my you know, general hesitation around mo most regulations and how they just keep opening up new problems to solve. Anyway, moving on. In pre preparing for this conversation, I, I was reading through some of the objections to uh, the passage of Prop 122. And so I was just going to put them forward to you to, I mean, it doesn't matter now, it, it passed, but I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you respond to uh, some of the opposition that was voiced to it. So one came from the Denver Gazette where it said Prop 122 would legalize mushrooms containing psilocybin and psilocin and other hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic drugs used mainly for recreation. Ignore the smokescreen about psychedelics use and therapy. Prop 122 means more impaired motorists and minors. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the Denver Gazette, you know, really misses the point that this is about recreation. You know, it's it's not. It's, it's about therapy and it's about healing. You know, yes, there's, you know, a decriminalization model and it decriminalizes, you know, certain natural psychedelics. But as we just talked about, like some of them are already legal to grow as it is. But I think the big thing is, like, if you ask law enforcement, 
they're not telling you that psychedelics is causing more problems or impaired drivers. And in fact, you kind of see the opposite. You know, most people who are under the influence of psychedelics don't want to go inside a car. They don't even want to go inside a building. And you also see when you just look at the arrests in Colorado, it's like less than 1% of all arrests, all drug arrests, you know, not just all arrests, all drug arrests are like related to psilocybin. Um, and so it's just, it's just not an issue from a, a public health and safety standpoint. But, you know, again, I think the, the demographics, that's like drugs, fear, like, let, let's put it out there. Uh, t- totally. Not to mention, it's like there are, are appropriate laws in place to disincentivize impaired driving, right? We don't need to categorize different drugs. It's like impaired driving, whether it's your phone, which is also basically a dopamine drug or alcohol or otherwise. It's like there, there is infrastructure in place to address that. And so, um, again, I think it's about education and making sure people act responsibly and not everybody's going to act responsibly, but I do feel like we've moved to a society where we've taken responsibility away from people. And so people act irresponsibly, you know, in many cases, unfortunately. Right. Right. It's no, I, I completely agree. It's like driving under the influence of mushrooms was illegal before this passed and it's illegal after it passes. And we have a whole system of of you know pulling over impaired drivers and it's something actually colorado takes very very seriously we have very strict laws around of course absolutely okay the denver post editorial board said however we are not naive and while the intent of legalizing possession and cultivation is for medical treatment we fear a robust market for recreational use would thrive increased legal tolerance will increase demand which will increase the temptation for profiteering if there's one thing we know about drug use, it's that teens and young adults will be most tempted to use it and they will be targeted by sellers. Psilocybin is not addictive, but is known to rarely cause psychosis and hallucinogen persisting perception disorder where people re-experience hallucinations that they had while taking the drug and while not intoxicated. How do you respond to that one? You know, a couple points there, you know, it's like psychedelics isn't for everyone. You know, I think it's like, you know, people a lot of times think, you know, psychedelics is some panacea that's going to cure all their problems. And it's just, it's just not the case. It's like there's times and places and for certain people who, you know, need to break habits, it's really good. And for people who aren't very stable as they normally are, it might not be the best. And, you know, so, so yes, there's like, there is, you know, it's not, there is some issues around it. But, you know, ultimately, though, like when we look at the measure that's actually put forward by the public, you know, it's like for what people actually voted on, they didn't vote on a robust market. They actually voted on supervised use, you know, like the most regulated sort of like way to like unroll a drug possible. It's like you can only use it under the supervision of someone who's licensed by the state, you know, and there's no sales. And so, you know, the Denver Post is kind of like setting up this like, you know, false, um, you know, and it kind of like, a, like a, a straw man, and, you know, and, and trying to get people to vote at the time. It's like trying to get people to vote no on something that wasn't actually in front of them. Um, you know, so you know, it was really a false argument. Now, look, will there be, you know, will someday, will there, you know, in the U.S. or in Canada, will there be a market around microdosing? I sure hope so. You know, there's the last number I saw was like 600,000 people microdose, like on a regular basis. And should they, should they be taking products that aren't tested, that have no like safety profiles because they're on, on underground? Like that doesn't make any sense. But that's not where we are today. And that's like, and who knows if we ever actually get there, but from a public policy standpoint, we should think about it. In this case, you know, it's just talking about supervised use for, you know, for really any reason or no reason. It can be therapy. It can be a diagnosis. It can be spiritual. You know, it's, a, you know, it's, it's pretty broad, but it's also really, really controlled. 
This is one of this is one that's trickier, um, and it's a, a topic that I'm still learning about, um, and you know, stepping on people's toes sometimes when I share thoughts, and, and so you know, I recognize that I have a lot to learn, but always trying to learn both from you know, the indigenous community as as well as people not in the indigenous community trying to find a holistic understanding. Um, so this one came from the Native Coalition Against Prop 122 which said that Prop 122 stands to threaten, exploit, and commercialize indigenous peoples and spiritual traditions. It ignores critical issues pertaining to stewardship, conservation, intellectual property, and fair trade practices. This bill misleads and falsely informs the public. The bill is opposed due to the rampant neglect, abuse, and harm that has already occurred within psychedelic research. Further, it is opposed because the bill's co-authors have positioned themselves to profit from the legalizing and medicalizing of natural medicines to the exclusion of the greater community. It lacks inclusion of disproportionately impacted communities. Passing a Prop 122 positions these natural medicines medicines for extractivism, some of which are not indigenous to Colorado, by those with limited understanding and knowledge of the medicines and their applications. Sorry, this is a long one, which will ultimately create further inequities, criminalizing uh, and uh, criminalizing and desecration of the sacred. There's a lot in there, so you don't have to talk to every point, but uh, obviously there there is concern about indigenous perspectives and attaining um, you know, their traditions without being it, it exploited in a, kind of a capitalistic model. So I know you touched on it a little bit, but would love to unpack that further. Yeah, I mean, I think first, you know, this like coalition is... You know, it's it's kind of, like I don't know who it is. They 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 didn't put a name on it. There's no contact information. People have tried to get a hold of them. Like we like no one knows who it is. So we don't know like like what indigenous voices are you actually speaking for? You know, like I think it's like a big question. And 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 then there's a lot of like and to say that like the indigenous community speaking one monolithic voice is just not true. You know, there's there's people who you know who come from all different like spectrums. You know. And, you know, one of, you know, the one, more larger groups working on indigenous plant medicines, you know, Sharkuna did endorse our mission, you know, so it's not like, right. you know, it's, hey, there's people against it, there's people for it. Well, actually, that is what it's like. It's not like everyone's against it. I think a couple things, you know, when you look at, you have to look at each substance differently. And so I think when you look at psilocybin and you say, hey, what cultures did, you know, you know use psilocybin mushrooms? It's pretty broad, and you know, and you know, and Paul Sandwich recently talked about this, and he had like a map of you know just cultures all around the world, from Ireland to Japan, who have like indigenous uses of, of psilocybin. So it's so that's like one substance, you know, and like hey, how, what does it mean to get back to these cultures, and how do we honor these, and how do we uncover past destroyed lineages that have really been un, you know kind of destroyed by you know Catholicism and you, you know different forms of you know destructive colonialism. You know, but then when you start to look at other pieces of this puzzle, like ayahuasca or ibogaine, and each one needs to be analyzed separately. And like, what does that tradition actually, you know, what are they okay with? And what are they not okay with? And and that's why it's like, in our measure, we're not regulating ayahuasca. You know, we're, we're literally just decriminalizing. We're providing more protections for those who are using it. You know, and maybe one day if it makes sense, it'll be regulated. Maybe it never will be. Um, you know, so I think it's like, each substance has to be looked at different at different differently. And but with that said, it's like I'm not indigenous and it's not, you know, I do think like and I hope like during this implementation process we can center some of these conversations around, you know, the in, indigenous leaders and the indigenous voice. And I'd love to, 
you know, figure out, you know, it's like, how do we sort of like build in like, you know, the principles that surround the Nagoya protocol into what we're doing in Colorado, even though the U S isn't a signatory on the Nagoya protocol, that doesn't mean we can't build into our regular regulated system, some sort of like benefit honoring or benefit sharing to either local tribes in Colorado or to, you know, you know, these, intergenerational wisdom traditions in other countries have been stewarding and protecting this medicine. And that is actually what I think is like appropriate. It's like, yes, if you're going to, you know, make money off of, you know, a tribal wisdom, like you should give, you should give back to that, you know, and like, and there should be the free and prior informed consent before you even do it. So there's a lot of issues to unpack here. And I think, I think we'll just see how this all unfolds, you know, you know, through the implementation process and, you know, and there's, you know, and we get criticized for this too, because it's like on the advisory board, there's no reserve seats. It's like, hey, you need to experience, you know, you need to experience these various different areas, except there is, you know, it's like the only reserve seat is for someone with like, in, you know, with a experience of the indigenous use of these medicines. And so it's like, we're trying our best. And when you look at like our equity-based program that's even built into this, there's supposed to be, you know, you know, preferences for those who have indigenously used these medicines, you know, both in obtaining facilitator training licenses or healing center licenses or access to these medicines on the regulated side. But all of that said, I think the short story of it all is like why we put together this decriminalized com community use model is actually to provide more protections, you know, than last in this community. We're actually just removing criminal protections. We're instituting civil protections around child rearing and professional licensure if you're engaging in the personal use of these medicines yeah i think it's like we're trying our best and i hope we can you know really center some of these next conversations around you know different indigenous voices no i appreciate that and, and i'm not asking these as a gotcha i'm genuinely asking <laughs> for like my own understanding about people's perspectives and how, how you respond to certain objections and, and work with them and all that kind of stuff so i, I hope you know, it's, it's coming across from that intent for me, which is I'm, I'm just learning. I'm curious to know how everybody's approaching these issues and responding to them. And I appreciate that. And frankly, like, I'm just learning too. Like, we're all just learning. You yeah. Know? Going back to my point about Justin Trudeau. Um, <laughs> Matthew Duffy said, while this may sound like a good thing to people who want to see increased access to psychedelics, this initiative is designed for corporate control, largely restricting access to corporate-owned healing centers. Frankly, the NMHA it's not a step in the right direction. It's a leap in the wrong direction. The NMHA is a corporate power grab, setting a corrupt foundation for the future of medicine stewardship in Colorado. Now, I, I think you have spoken to the fact that there's these two balancing approaches to it, which is the community use and, and, and the healing center. So I think we may have touched on that, but curious to know if there's anything else you'd like to elucidate in, in responding to that one. I think besides the obvious that if it was... If we were making a corporate power grab, we would have drafted this a lot differently. Like, you know, there's a limitation on, you know, it's like an individual, not even a company, individual can't have an interest in one of the five healing centers. There's sort of like a built-in ESG screening process that screens out companies that don't have, you know, enough like, you know, business practices that match the values of Colorado. You know, there's not sales involved. You know, there's facilitators that can you know, practice at private residences and nursing homes. It's like, you know, it's far from, you know, a corporate power grab. And a lot of the people involved really though, you know, a lot of philanthropists. And I think, you know, I think the big issue, you know, that people has like, well, how could people put so much money into this measure if they don't have their own financial gain? 
And it sort of like ignores this notion that like, hey, there's actually a lot of people that just made a ton of money and psychedelics have changed their life and they want to make this more available. You know, it's like this, hey, how do we rile up opposition? You know, well, generally it's like you, you know, create fear of the unknown, you know, and you demonize and you impute motives and you, you know, so a lot of, I think in that piece, it's a lot of rhetoric without substance, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's entirely fair. And even this morning, there's an article about how in Canada we have access to the special access program, uh, which enables some access to psilocybin. And um, Thomas Hartle, who's well known, has been on this podcast, he had to wait 440 days for an additional approval for his next approval for psilocybin. It's just, it's just, just infuriating and mind blowing how, going back to your point, which is like this is a natural product that grows out of the ground. And this is a person who has stage four cancer and he has to wait 440 days because quote unquote, um, there's not enough research. And, and that really kind of ties into the last objection that I wanted to read, which was from Luke uh, Niforatos. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. We should not replay the public health harms that surrounded the rush to legalize marijuana. Instead, we should learn from history and wait for researchers to learn more about potential harms and benefits costs of getting this wrong are too steep for us to proceed without understanding all the potential side effects so we know more we should reject the legalization of psychedelics it will be another quote bad trip for for colorado and i guess you know i'm curious to know specifically with respect to the legalization of cannabis which i know you've instrumental to have there been any real significant stories of negative health. I mean, I've seen the occasional article about someone's like, oh, my son died because he had a heart attack after smoking cannabis, which based on everything I know is probably a dubious assessment without other considerations having to be considered in the totality of the circumstance. But yeah, I, I guess what has the experience with uh, cannabis in Colorado been and how does that pertain to any insights into psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, I think like, First thing, I'm pretty sure Luke is a professional anti-cannabis, um, you know, lobbyist. You know, so like, I think it's worth noting. Okay. He makes his money perpetuating, you know, criticisms of the cannabis industry. I mean, overall, it's like, look, it's public opinion shows people in Colorado are fine with the cannabis industry. You know, like the sky hasn't fallen. It's not a big deal. The, um, you know, tax revenues come in. Use among youth in Colorado is down. Um, you know, and so it's like overall just not a big deal. Now, with that said, there is like a vocal opposition of um, sort of like progressive moms in Boulder who, you know, who blame their children's like, you know, not becoming a doctor on them smoking dabs. And, you know, and so, you know, there's this voice that like absent dabs, my kid would have done everything I wanted that kid to do. And, um, you know, and so that's led to like different conversations around potency restrictions and the like and you know and so you know it's just there's been this like demonization of, of cannabis and, and i do think there's like some issues you know it's like when you look at how cannabis treated like the sort of legacy grower versus you know it's like the new sort of like you know larger monopolistic companies i think there's like some you know some you know fair criticisms of like hey is you know did cannabis turn out to be the industry we wanted it to be? You know, but a lot of those criticisms come from folks who have issues with extractive capitalism overall. You know, when so when you actually compare it to to cannabis, I think it's a fault. You know, well, one, I, I think most people support cannabis. You know, in Colorado, and and they have you know for ten years now. 
Um, but I also just think it's different. You know, it's like psychedelics, you know, it's like they're not addictive. They're not, you don't use them every day. You know, they have, you know, transformative, um, you know, they have a lot of transformative properties to them. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, who use psychedelics too, like, don't drink as much, you know, and like, you know, and probably like don't even smoke as much weed, you know? And so it's, you know, you really just talk about, you know, very different substances. All right. Let's talk about you. So you're a practicing lawyer. Uh, did you always want to be a lawyer? Uh, was that a dream from childhood? Like I had imposed on me kind of by virtue of my mom. And I'm sure I've shared the story on the podcast before, but I, I grew up and, um, my parents had a pretty ugly divorce. Um, and so growing up, there were a lot of lawyers around. And I remember one day I was sitting there playing my Commodore 64 because we had a Commodore 64, which was pretty rad back in the early 80s. And one of them sat down to play with me and he was a nice guy. And so I remember saying to my mom, oh, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up because he was a nice guy. And I was kind of never allowed to forget that. Now I'm blaming my mom way too much. Obviously, I took that and run with it, ran with it as well, and ultimately realized that the profession was not for me but what was your story uh into the practice of law and then subsequently what grabbed your attention to practice in in these very emerging spaces of cannabis and psychedelics i find my story interesting but i don't know if other people do but you know in <laughs> the um, in short you know i grew up in a very fundamental christian household you know of, uh, oh really okay you know really religious um went to the same school as i did church and um you, you know and at some point it didn't make sense to me like there's like something that was off and it was actually you know kind of tied to a psilocybin experience you know around you know like you know early 18 you know not 21 so you know you definitely judge me but and that really opened my eyes it, you know it sort of like integrated this notion of like hey, you can still want the world to be a better place. You can still, like, want people, you know, instead of, like, playing in the afterlife, like, you can still try and, like, bring heaven here to earth. And that sort of sent me off on a quest of, of drug policy reform, you know. And, you know, in college, I, you know, was involved with, uh, you know, we started a Students for a Sensible Drug Policy chapter, and we, you know, ran a lot of campaigns on our, like, small undergrad campus to rabble-rouse and, you know, try and push drug policy issues forward. And then with like a, a lack of not knowing what else to do with myself, I, I went to law school and, um, and got involved in cannabis. Actually, we were fighting for medical cannabis patients. And it was, you know, there's like a big question of like whether I was going to go work at a large firm or work at this nonprofit trying to protect medical cannabis patients. And I was like, well, let's, let's go with the nonprofit. And, um, you know, and so I bet on this quest, you know, for the last, I guess, like 18 years of like, how do we you know, reform our drug laws and bring more agency and more, you know, bring, just give people more agency over their consciousness and like allow them to decide what the, how they want to experience the, the, the divine and the sacred and, and recreate and sort of like just explore who they are as a person. And, you know, and so we started Vicente Cedarberg, oh, I guess 12 years ago, you know, with this goal of like, how do we leverage capitalism to like end cannabis prohibition? And through that time, we started working on psilocybin and other drug policy legislation as well. And since then, we've actually been like, hey, how do we, you know, it's like the conversation shifted. It's like, hey, can we use cannabis to like reduce the harms of capitalism? It's, you know, it's a, the mission's shifting a little bit, but the big picture, it's like that's sort of where we found ourselves. It's like, like, hey, how do we just make new markets and how do we, write laws and get them passed and bring people more freedoms and you know that's 
And you know, so now at this point, you know, it's it's ironic because it was you know helped draft Amendment 64 in Colorado and was part of that campaign team to like legalize cannabis for all adults. And then 10 years, you know, 10 years to the day, we passed you know Prop 122, which also helped draft and chaired you know chaired the campaign committee. So it's it's almost become like a at this point a responsible or irresponsible habit of of making drugs more legal than they were before. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's worthwhile, and, and that's coming from a, a person who uh, really had almost no um, drug experience until I saw an opportunity to get involved entrepreneurially in the cannabis space, and then I saw, you know, the impact that cannabis medicine had on people. Uh, and you know, I think, and if you look at it from a medical perspective, recreation is <laughs> entirely therapeutic um, in in many ways. Obviously, there's a balance and there's responsibility involved, but that goes back to your point about agency. How is it going uh, back home uh, with your family and and your childhood schoolmates talking this kind of stuff? Have they come around, or is that still a sticky subject? They have come around. You know, it's um, <laughs> you know, I think you know, I think my mom always tells me she's like, you know, I like it when you help. I, I like it when you help people, not necessarily, but not necessarily when you help them get high. <laughs> so, yeah, but. No, they're all. You know, most people are, are are relatively supportive, and I think at the end of the day, you know, it's like you know, access to consciousness and people's like relationship with the divine and with the sacred, whether it's you know enhanced by natural products or not. It's it's a very personal thing, and it crosses over you know you know, different religious traditions. You know, and you see you know you see sacraments and religions all the time. You know, and it's actually something that's like. People are starting to like reclaim, you know, reclaim their own lineage and their own roots with, you know, with some of these, you know, with some of these natural psychedelics that are deeply rooted in religion. Where do you go from here? Like, what what do you see happening? So we have Oregon and Colorado. Um, if you're going to lay wagers on the next dates to have what I'll call enlightened policy movements uh, pertaining to psychedelics, where where would you wager? Um, and looking at Oregon, which this program should, in theory, launch in a couple of weeks, what are your hopes? What are your expectations? What are your concerns there? You know, I think with Oregon, you know, I think it's, you know, we'll see it roll out. I think we'll see, you know, psilocybin service centers, you know, you probably see one or two and, you know, the end of Q1, maybe early Q2 and most, you know, open nine months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, after the the beginning of, of this next year. And I think we'll see like a lot of people with, you know, with PTSD and with trauma and with depression and with addiction really find relief from these substances. You know, and I think once, you know, you know, once more and more people, you know, like experience, you know, you know this healing, you know, they're going to tell people it's just going to keep, you know, it's going to keep building and there likely won't be enough facilitators, you know, to be honest. I think we'll see like a, a bottleneck that, you know, there just won't be enough facilitators out there to to meet the demand. And, you know, and then, you know, then what does that look like? You know, and if you just do the math, it's like how many, you know, it's like how many, you know, psilocybin experiences can one facilitator oversee in a year? You know, how many facilitators yeah. do you need to even like get close to the addressable market of people with you know issues related to depression or trauma or you know or addiction? You know, it's like you know, the potential healing power is so huge, but there's just not enough people right now. So I think we'll see the industry grow. I think we'll see a lot of 
training, you know, schools and training facilities pop up, you know, one of the leading colleges and, or I guess universities in Colorado that graduates the most licensed therapists, Naropa, you know, is, you know, has a great psychedelic, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy track. And I think we'll see more schools start to pick that up. I also think we'll see movement at the federal level, you know, even if slowly, you know, I think we'll start to see, you know, eventually here, you know, so you'll see MDMA approved, maybe, you know, Compass or USONA is like synthetic psilocybin. I um, you know, then I think once, once MDMA is approved, I think that'll be like a huge watershed moment, um, you know, for, you, you know, just, just the mainstream medical establishment accepting this. You know, Colorado, we got we got some ways ways to go. Um, I think on the personal use side, I think you'll see people, you know, start talking about what's going on, you know, more than they have been before because they're now, you know, they're not facing the same legal consequences. You know, I think on the regulated side, like you'll see a lot of spirit spirited debates, you know, similar to the ones that you read about of people opposing the campaign of like, you know, taking different positions on proposed regulations. I think we will see other states move forward. I could see some states, you know, on a very limited aspect, like maybe some more research bills like you saw in Connecticut or Texas around psychedelic research. Um, you know, and then I think we'll see more and more psychedelic research. Um, you know, what states, you know, could potentially be next for a ballot measure. I mean, I think probably look at, you know, the cannabis map timeline and, you know, and, and take some guesses. But you know, there's a lot of movement going on in Washington. You know, there's a lot of movement going on in Michigan. There's a lot of movement going on in Massachusetts. Representative, State Representative Weiner in California said, you know, he's probably going to try again with his Senate Bill 519, which creates like, which pretty much would create like, the personal use section of Prop 122, but in California, you know, I think, you know, I think there'll yeah. be like another go around there. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I think we'll probably also see some, you know, we'll probably see some pretty scary stories of people being, you know, having some different destabilization or psychotic episodes. You know, I don't think it'll be that many, but I think there'll be a couple, you know, and they'll be in the news and we'll have to figure out how as a community we want to handle that. Um, I think we'll see, you know, sort of like rise of the neo-shaman and you'll see, you know, and some will, you know, will have deep roots and some, you know, you know, won't. And, you know, there'll probably be some associated problems there. And uh, that's my, my, my list of potential pr- predictions of what we'll see coming up. Yeah, I think you're very right. And, and it's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's an important thing. It's like, yeah, there's going to be instances of destabilization and there's going to be of shamans or therapists doing the wrong thing and i think the more we can just like own up to the fact that that's going to be the case you know, and, and respond with empathy compassion and thoughtfulness uh, as how we move forward is the right thing and my big beef is just avoiding the reactionary policy reform that often happens when there's a single bad instance in a landscape where they're overall it's relatively small yeah, and I think it's like, you know, on, you know, to that point, it's like on the, in, in Colorado, on our personal use unregulated model, you know, there's such a need for the community to self-regulate. And if the, and if the community can't self-regulate and people look at that, you know, sort of limited protections and like really exploit it and like, you know, and open up mushroom stores that aren't permitted under this, but open them up anyways. You know, like that will make it very difficult 
both like in keeping this model in Colorado, but in other states, when other states are looking for, you know, for reform. So if we want to have a community-based model and, you know, a personal use model, we need to make sure that we like self-regulate as a community. I don't know why I, 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 I was just inspired to ask this question of you and I'm going to take it forward to all future podcast recordings. But uh, if Josh Kappel was to write the Josh Kappel autobiography, what would the title of it be based on your life experience? <laughs> it's a hard question because I don't know what my answer would be. Actually, I do know what my answer would be right now because I've been thinking about it, but uh, you know, it's still just a tentative placeholder. Oh man, I think like maybe on the edges of legality. <laughs> the edges of legality. I like that. Awesome, Josh. Well, listen. Congratulations on getting Prop 122 uh, across the line. You know, whether pro Prop 122 against it, it doesn't detract from the accomplishment and, and amount of work and effort convincing and fundraising and all that went into it. Um, and so I think that just de deserves recognition in and of itself. And obviously, personally, I'm, I'm very supportive. I think it's a very smart approach to drug policy reform as it pertains to, to psychedelics that creates the right balances. So kudos. Uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, you know, I do really believe that it was one small step for Coloradans, but it is like a, a big step forward for humanity and advancing an important conversation. And I also want to thank you for taking the time, you know, to, to join us here. I'm sorry we didn't get it done before the election, but I'm glad we got it done. And I want to continue uh, obviously we'll have continued conversations because i'm sure our paths are going to cross often in the future uh but we'll wish you the best and, and thank you for sharing your thoughts it's been very instructive and informative uh to me ronan thank you so much for having me you know and any thanks to you know me for the passage of prop 122 i definitely have to to deflect to the you know the community in colorado and the, and the team and the funders and even the people who, you know, oppose this, you know, eventually, but, you know, provided insightful impact on, you know, impact, yeah, in, insightful information on creating this, you know, whole community healing and personal use model. You know, it's really a, a big shout out to all of them of, you know, getting this over the, over the finish line. And um, yeah, appreciate being on here. Thanks for letting me talk about psychedelics and talk way too personally about myself, but the, uh, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I, I think it's important, right? I, I, you know, one of the dirtiest words in the English language in my mind is the word professional, um, because it means we have to wear two different faces um, between what is work and what is what is home. And it's like, that's that doesn't make sense. That in inherently creates perverse outcomes in my mind. So it's like, let's let's all just be real, uh, acknowledge our, our strengths, acknowledge our flaws. I think we will have a much more humane world to live in if recognize that we're not perfect and, and have a lot of compassion for each other. So, so thank you for sharing your, your, your personal stories as well. I know it can be deeply uncomfortable, especially for someone in a regulated position or profession. Um, so it's extra meaningful from my perspective. Well, I appreciate all that. And I actually do echo. I think the more we can, we can integrate our entire selves into, you know, into our work and into our social lives, you know, the better the world will be as opposed to, you know, putting on a mask, for, you know, putting on a mask to show up in one spot and taking it off to show up in another. Absolutely. Beautiful note to end on. Thanks again, Josh. Uh, have a great afternoon and then we'll talk soon. Permit me to tell a brief story. 
Last night, I was out for a dinner at a restaurant called Juline on the Danforth in Toronto. Anyone who lives in the city ought to check it out because the food is actually quite fabulous. But that's not the point of this reflection. The point of this reflection is that while I was at the restaurant, a song came on and for whatever reason, its lyrics captured my imagination. They went something like, don't ever let me ever let you go. There was something about these lyrics that I found very beautiful. And as I reflected on them, they led me back to the conversation with Josh about Prop 122 and the Natural Medicines Health Act. One of the things I found so wickedly smart about Prop 122 is the inherent checks and balances it built into it, creating two distinct programs that are in effect in competition with each other. They put the onus on one side of Prop 122 to never let the other side get out of hand. Don't ever let me ever let you go. And while there is very much a trend these days to link the word competition to capitalism and import all the excesses and negative impacts that modern capitalism can have on this world, if we go back to the original intention of the word competition from ancient Greece, it is not to win or to defeat your opponent, but rather to elevate your competition, to encourage your competition to be the best it can be so it can in turn, help you elevate yourself to be the best you can be. And that to me seems exactly what Prop 122 does with this approach. Now, Prop 122 certainly isn't perfect. And as I said in the conversation with Josh, I'm still learning and trying to figure out my own internal integrity of balancing all of the interests in the psychedelic space and frankly, life in general. But to me, this feels like the right way to start. As Charlie Munger once said, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. But here, I don't think that's such a clear answer and that's probably exactly how it should be. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review Field Tripping wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtriphealth.com podcast. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, Breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Thank you to everybody for voting on Prop 122, both yes and no. It's important for proponents of psychedelics to engage with society and show the world that these medicines should be normalized and not taboo. Every person who uses these medicines has valid opinions and deserves to be heard as laws and lawmakers evolve with us. And certainly, thank you to Josh for joining us today.